The views and opinions of this program are those of its host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of 90.1 FM, KKFI, Midcoast Radio Project, or its staff and volunteers. Gratitude goes out to you today for listening to Eco Radio KC on 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. This is a locally made exploration into positive solutions to some of today's ecological challenges for all of us working to create a healthier future for our communities and for the world you live in. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. My name is Darnell. Today on Eco Radio KC, host Brent Ragsdale will speak with Ben Postletway, Kansas State Director of Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy is a global environmental organization headquartered in Arlington, Virginia. It works via affiliates or branches in 79 countries and territories, as well as across every state in the U.S. The Nature Conservancy is a 501c3 nonprofit founded in 1951 with a focus in environmental conservation. The Kansas chapter of the Nature Conservancy was formed in 1989. Ben Postletway, a former Effigy employee, has been Kansas State Director since June of 2023. He has two decades of experience in the electric utility industry and a background in biology. As state director, Ben will lead a team of experts and support staff focused on lasting and large-scale land, water, and biodiversity conservation statewide. He would like to ensure we and our children have the opportunity to experience and understand Kansas's great natural resources. Postlet Weight joins the team as it works toward its new five-year strategic plan. He and his staff will work to protect high-priority prairies and streams, promote regenerative agricultural practices, advance renewable energy development while protecting ecologically sensitive areas, and engage partners, supporters, and others in the work. Eco Radio KC supports the work for a future in which human flourish as members of a thriving ecosphere. We are all in this together, and it will take all of us to make the world safe for human habitation for millennia to come. We're glad to encourage awareness and protection of our world. Our goal is to ensure our listeners are aware of how we can create a sustainable present or a sustainable future. This will be a great radio hour. Now, our show. Welcome to Eco Radio KC. I'm Brent Ragsdale. This week, my guest is Ben Postalweight. He is the fairly new director for the state of Kansas for the Nature Conservancy. And we are in his office, and it is actually December 20th. So, um, Ben, thank you for being on Eco Radio. Thanks for having me. I'm all looking right. forward to it. Yeah. So, I think we're all eager for the uh, winter solstice and the return of the light and then Christmas. So that'll be a good thing. I want to talk about uh, 
the Nature Conservancy and what you guys are all about. I think it's a pretty well-known, well-respected group that's been around for a long time in a lot of states and a lot of countries and do a lot of good work. Uh, but I also want our listeners to learn a little bit about you. Um, you and I have been in the same circles but don't really know each other all that well. Right. You live in Lawrence and you were running the uh, green team for Evergy, and so that took Correct. you to a lot of the green functions in the Lawrence area, yep. and I would see you there. Yeah, so um, tell me a little bit about where where you grew up. I think yeah. you're a Kansan. Yeah, I am, so uh, Kansas, uh, born and raised, so I, I was born in Wichita, and the, the bulk of my um, family is still there, so my parents and my grandmother on my dad's side, um, and my, my aunt and those folks, but yeah, so born in Wichita, but didn't grow up there. Um, moved to Coffee County, which Lebo is the, the little town I grew up in. Uh, that's where I, I really, you know, I went to, to junior high and high school and, and uh, but we were kind of imports into a little rural community. Um, but as soon as they realized that uh, my sister and I could, could play sports, we were, we were welcomed <laughs> with open arms. Um, but yeah, I grew up in a small town. So I grew up, my, my family worked in the energy industry all the way back to my great, great grandpa. Um, obviously in, in the state of Kansas, obviously for different companies over the years as it grew and changed. But um, so my dad worked at, at Wolf Creek nuclear operating plant in Burlington, Kansas. So I grew up in Lebo right next to that. Um, but yeah, I grew up in a rural community, did not grow up on a farm, but grew up working on farms because that was the most common work that you did growing up in a small town. Um, worked at the horse stables and painted a lot of fence and hauled a lot of hay and all that. And um, but really enjoyed growing up in a small town. You know, of course, you, you play all the sports, basketball and track and football. And uh, football was kind of my, my, my sport of choice. But um, grew up in Lebo, went, ended up going to college out at Fort Hayes State University. Got my undergrad bio, biology degree from there, um, which really came down to uh, I, I knew I wanted to play football in college. And I could, I could play at Fort Hayes, and I probably couldn't at K-State. So... Um, I decided to, to go into to biology at Fort Hayes, played football for a couple of years out there, but the biology is really what, what kept me there. Um, I, yeah, it's funny, my, my brain, I have more of an engineering brain than a, than a biology brain, um, but I enjoyed the biology much more than I did any of the engineering work. So took me to biology. My, uh, my first um, job right out of college, I worked for the Lyon County Health Department in Emporia, Kansas. Um, that's where my wife is from. Um, so she grew up there. Casey is her name, but, um, but yeah, so started working at the Lyon County Health Department doing food and drug inspections. So I was the, the local health inspector guy, um, did that for about a year and then ultimately knew that I wanted to do environmental work for more of an industrial kind of a business. Of course, my family having done, um, uh, energy. energy work in yeah. the past um, that wasn't an in to get a job with the power company it was just that I knew it existed and I knew what they did um, so I actually my first job in the energy industry was a power plant operator um, which did not require a biology degree to do um, but it, frankly it paid better than being a, a local sanitarian for Lyon County Health Department but so I did that and job that was at Jeffrey that was at Jeffrey Energy Center which is um, a pretty large like a 2400 megawatt uh, power plant up near St. Mary's. Um, at the time, it was West Star Energy. Um, but yeah, I started as a power plant operator knowing that 
uh, that Westar at the time, soon Evergy today, um, had a pretty significant conservation environmental program to work within. So got a job as a power plant operator, kind of got my foot in the door with the environmental services program. I did air emissions monitoring work for the better part of 10 years. So I was responsible for sending reports to the EPA in the state on the air emissions at the power plant. I did that kind of compliance, environmental compliance work for about 10 years, like I said. At one point in there, I moved out to Denver, Colorado to do the same job for Xcel Energy out in Denver. Came back to Kansas about 13 years ago or so to start doing conservation work for Westar Energy at the time, now Evergy. So, um, which was great. I worked under, um, who's now Secretary of Wildlife and Parks, Brad Loveless. I worked under him at Evergy doing conservation work. Um, And that included our green team, which is where we first kind of got engaged. Also did work focused on renewable energy permitting, transmission line permitting, so threatened endangered species assessments, site habitat assessments, that kind of work. Um, did ESG or sustainability reporting for a while, climate uh, risk and resilience assessments for Evergy. Um, I did, uh, like I said, our environmental edu- education stewardship program which is what we called our green team, which I bet some of our listeners, when I say that word, they'll, they'll recognize it. Yeah. Um, avian protection program. And so, and it wasn't just me doing all that work. I had staff that helped me through that. Sure. Which frankly led me to where I am today because the relationships that I formed at Evergy and the conservation community with the environmental compliance kind of a background, um, you know, our conservation community is pretty, um, pretty small. Um, we all know each other. We work with each other on various projects. And so it's been great to work with TNC in the past with my role with the energy company and then move into where I'm at today. Yeah. So Boy, it sounds like <clears throat> everything you did yeah. sort of prepared you for this job. Yeah. It, Even choosing a biology degree, I think, is, is perfect. And it's been great because, I mean, and I, I always say this to folks um, just so that the, the listeners don't get a, a misshapen view of me. I'm never the best biologist in the room. <laughs> never. Because, you know, I, as you heard from my story, I got out of school and I just instantly basically started doing more kind of industrial environmental compliance work, So, which is very regulatory focused. It's, it's process control procedure focused. It's reporting. Um, so I'll never be the best, you know, range manager. I'll never be the best grassland specialist. Uh, but what I've learned over all that time is to, to take different people from different backgrounds, get them rowing the boat in the same direction, um, especially with our green team projects, because those projects we would do in our communities, um, one day we may be planting trees at a school one day or building a high control bridge another day out of old recycled power poles. And you could imagine I'd have an HR professional, a line worker, and our CEO all working together on one project to build a bridge or to plant a tree. And those are very different individuals and mindsets to put into a into sure. a project. So that's been the fun part is learning how to work with people from very different backgrounds and then frankly be humble when it comes to knowing what I don't know. And so when questions about grassland management come up with TNC or when a, um, a conservation practice comes up or a water conservation idea or project comes up, I'm never the person answering those yeah. questions. I have staff that are, I've yeah. got a, I've got a, a a PhD that works for us, Dr. Heidi Mel, that is a specialist in water work. So, and we can go into some detail on that later. But 
um, I lean on those people to, to answer all the questions. Um, yeah, and living in Lawrence with the University of Kansas here, you've got yeah, a lot of expertise, for, yeah. and you're t- well tapped into the community. So that's, that's true, that's and that's that's been helpful to, to know how to kind of navigate the conservation community, and um, it helps us get things done, because yeah. we don't do this work alone. Yeah. Um, and frankly, working now for a, a large global nonprofit, um, you know, having those connections helps, because I mean, TNC doesn't, we don't make a product to, to, to bring revenue in to do our work. Yeah. It's all focused on um, donors, trustees, foundations, public-private grant opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, how we, that's how we do our work. Um, so we keep overhead low, and we put all that money back into conservation work. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's well, a lot of words for me. No, that, yeah, I get it. <laughs> well, that's very interesting. I, I do have an engineering background. I went to K-State and I took a class called Modern Power Cycles yeah. where we got to tour both of those plants. Oh, okay. The one your dad worked in and the one where <coughs> yeah. you worked in. So, yeah. Yeah, that's all good stuff. It was, so working for the power company is really, was very good for me to open my eyes to to what it takes to, to make our world go around. Um, you know, it is, it is not as simple as, um, you know, just generate an electron and moving it down the line to, to, to turn on lights. Um, so it's been a really good experience for me to, to learn that from the ground up. I mean, as a power plant operator that knew what it was like to open a valve and make steam run to a turbine all the way to the compliance side to learn that, you know, how the business keeps going from a regulatory standpoint. Um, and then in the, the later part of my career with Evergy, understanding renewable energy, its impact on the grid, its impact on the landscape, the transmission lines that are required to carry those electrons from one part of the state to another, and all the partners in between that it takes to make that happen. Yeah. So. You know, and I, I read your bio on the, the, uh, the, the Nature Conservancy website, and it lists your credentials and speciality, yeah. you know, energy and also siting. So they're, obviously they're taking advantage of that, not just for the state of Kansas, right. but I, I imagine that you're kind of an expert regionally as well for, for the organization. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's one opportunity that I've been awarded already in my short tenure here at TNC. Is So I've been with TNC as a state director in Kansas for eight months, um, which isn't that long, frankly. Yeah. Um, but again, it's helped because I, I knew all of my I, I knew our staff in Kansas 10 years ago because we've worked on conservation projects before, but the, what I've been really fortunate to be able to do is step into a role. So we have, um, and I'll kind of outline TNC, we have divisions. So we have um, divisions across the country and then we have um, global divisions that work and, and do our work. And I won't, I won't bore you with all those details, but our Great Plains division is basically North Dakota down to Texas, includes Arkansas, Missouri, um, Iowa, and then Minnesota as well. So that Great Plains region, I was given the opportunity to take on a renewable energy sponsorship as a state director for the Great Plains Renewable Energy or Clean Energy Transition Strategy. Given my background, it just kind of made sense. Um, it wasn't great timing because I'm trying to learn how to be a state director and, and what all that entails. And additionally, I have this sponsorship now that I'm working through. But I do believe firmly that if you have the talent in, in-house to, to do the work, really, that whether they're overworked or learning or not, they you know if you've got the, the expertise in a given area, they need to, to focus on these issues. But 
So I'm excited. We, we just announced that a month ago, and we're rolling out kind of a longer-term strategy, frankly, really, to, to, um, to enable developers, energy companies, to rapidly deploy renewable energy um, in the landscape, but do so in a responsible way, a sustainable way, so that we're not impacting um, native grass ecosystems, species. Um, it's tough because in an agriculture state like Kansas, we direct a lot of those resources towards disturbed properties, disturbed lands. A lot of them are agriculture-based. So, you know, we are we are we understand that there's a there's a balance there to be had. Um, but frankly, our priorities are to protect the lands and the waters on which all life depends. And so, that un intact, undisturbed native tall grass prairie is is prime territory for us to protect, as is the short grass prairie and mid and Midgrass, um, out in western Kansas and in the central part of the state, so it's not just the the tall grass prairie and the Flint Hills that we yeah. want to protect. It's also short grass areas, yeah. but and it's also habitat for habitat, for yeah, places for the the, the whooping cranes to right. land and things things right. like that. Well, Ben, this is probably a good place for us to take our first break. Sure, but we're talking with Ben Postalweight of the Nature Conservancy, and we'll be right back. All right, all right, good stuff. Puzzled by the news? Wanting to learn more? Understanding Israel-Palestine airs every Friday at 9.30 a.m. Locally produced but focused on national and international events, the hosts of UIP interview scholars, journalists, activists, and others about the ongoing conflict in Israel-Palestine. Once again, that's Understanding Israel-Palestine every Friday morning at 9.30 a.m. on KKFI. Would you like to host and produce a radio show? KKFI is looking for more volunteer programmers to join our team. We offer training, experience, and a diverse community of dedicated individuals who want to keep the airwaves free. If you're interested in becoming a volunteer programmer, please contact us via email at programming at kkfi.org. Welcome back to Eco Radio KC. I'm talking with Ben Postalweight of the Nature Conservancy. So Ben, you've given me a little of your background and uh, started in on your expertise, you know, in terms of energy and siting and, and such here in the central region of the, of the states. But let's take a step back and talk about the Nature Conservancy to give our listeners kind of a, an overview of, of what the organization is about. I think you you, you quoted a little bit from your mission statement. I, I read that and was really impressed with it. It's super concise. Conserving the lands and water on which all life depends. Man, that's a great mission. It's a big job. <laughs> it is a big job. Yeah, and so it, it was one of the things that I'll say, um, so embedded in that mission statement, as most mission statements tend to do, is this idea of um, the idea that life depending upon the land and the water one of the things that really brought me to TNC and made me really want to work for this organization is the fact that they have that, that people are still in that equation. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not making any any real stark statements here, but um, we're here to stay. People are here. I mean, there, there's our impact on the land and the water and, and the landscape on which we live. And TNC is very focused on um, making sure people stay in that equation. Um, making sure that it's about people making good decisions on land protection and water protection work. Um, and so that really, um, 
really inspired me when I started looking at this particular position because um, I do believe that that um, you know it, it's not a uh, it's it, it's not a just a binary decision on on protecting the environment versus people versus development yeah. versus it, it, and that's particularly important here in, in the state of Kansas because yeah. we have a lot more environment than we have people actually right but you know we feed a lot of people with our agriculture and yeah. we supply a lot of power right here you yeah. know a lot of energy and and all of those things are necessary yep. um, and so we've got to balance a lot of a lot of disparate needs yeah and, and that's the fun of it and it often puts me in a strange position as as I was before working for the the energy company doing conservation work is, is people would often raise an eyebrow and and kind of question, you know, like well, why did why does the power company have a conservation group? You know, what I, I guess I didn't, you know, people didn't think the energy company cared. And I'll be the first to say that, like, well, Evergy, my previous employer, which we're not here to talk about them, but you know, they are they aren't perfect, but but in terms of what they do from an environmental standpoint, um, they do good work. Um, but again, I'm not here to say that they're perfect. Uh, there's no entity in the world that's perfect. Um, but I will say that the the, the work we're doing at the Nature Conservancy to protect land and water, it's done with a balance with people that mind, with our producers in the state in mind. Um, and learning how to balance that is a lot of fun, but it does put us in a weird spot sometimes where, where sometimes we may, we may be in a, <clears throat> a room where we, we take some criticism from an environmental advocacy group that we're not promoting renewables enough um, and at the same time, we may be taking criticism from producers in that we are promoting renewable energy at all. Yeah. And, and what I love about it is there's a balance there to be found. Because um, I do believe that in, in issues um, such as these that impact <clears throat> landscape and energy production and the people who live on the land, um, there is a balance to be found. Um, we don't always find it, but we can sure always try. Um, and that's what we're here to do. Yeah. You know, and I think as industrial society matures and we get more built up and, and bigger populations of people, we're, we're starting to hit limits yeah. and constraints. And one thing about capitalism is no one's really looking out for the commons right. in capitalism. Everybody is, is trying to make a profit for yep. their shareholders. Bigger and better. Bigger and better. Right. And so it, we need not-for-profit groups like the Nature Conservancy, yeah. that is a 501c3, mm -hmm. that can then stand up for, for the environment. Yeah. And I, I, I really appreciate that. I, I was impressed with your website. I did a little cramming this morning yeah. Yeah. on you know, what you guys are up to, and I'd like to, to hear about that from, from your um, perspective. But you have, I think, a, a pretty gr good grounding in the reality of climate science. Yes. And you also talk equally about biodiversity and how important that is. And I think both of those things are really important. Yep. So so to, to, to jump into that a little bit, so when we look at the the, the threats to to this planet, biodiversity and, and climate change, and call climate change what you will, changing weather, I, it doesn't matter to me what you call it, the, the facts and the data are there. So this, this crisis we're facing in terms of, of climate issue and biodiversity, 
those are the big threats that we're looking to take on. And a lot of people will, will ask me um, at, a, at a certain level, like, well, what can Kansas do about these two big issues? Well, we're blessed to have, you know, the, the largest intact piece of, of prairie left in the world um, right in our backyard. Um, we're blessed also to have a, a resource in wind and sun for energy production in a renewable way that, that's, that's, that's arguably one of the best in the country. So we can be a solution to both in this state from a biodiversity standpoint and the species that exist in the tall grass prairie and short grass prairie out west. Um, we can also provide solutions to climate issues when it comes to energy production because we've got good wind and solar resources in this state. And so I kind of look at, at Kansas as ground zero for a lot of these solutions. There are some states, yes, granted, that have more from a, from a data standpoint biodiverse ecosystems. I totally understand that. Yeah. There are other states that may have better energy, renewable energy resources than Kansas, but when you pair those together and the landscape that we have, these grasslands that we have in the state, and then we have these these energy resources mm -hmm. that, that are, I won't say untapped because the energy companies have, have come a long ways in the last even five years to increase renewable energy production, but it's really exciting. We can be we can bring real solutions to the table here in Kansas. And, you know, people call this flyover country. And, um, I mean, we kind of like it that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, for one, um, I enjoy the fact that I live in Lawrence, Kansas, and in five minutes on my bike, I can be out on a gravel road riding my bike in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I enjoy that. Yeah. Um, and I don't want it to change. Yeah. Um, but so anyway, I got a little off topic there, but um, so TNC from a, from, a, from a big risk or threat standpoint, we address biodiversity, climate issues. Um, and we do so by frankly putting dollars to work, whether it is private donor, uh, public grant money, foundation money to work in protecting land. So whether that's, that's buying a piece of tall grass prairie to preserve in perpetuity whether it's a conservation easement, so we work in that space as well, or whether it's our funding our staff to go out and seek grant money to put water conservation measures on the ground out in western Kansas, which is a big deal for us right now. So that's kind of how we do our work from a land protection standpoint. Hmm. Um, we also put <clears throat> resources into um, our stewardship program, which is, is not new for TNC in Kansas, but it's a... Um, we've taken steps to make it more of a focused program. Um, it's one thing to put an easement on a piece of property and then walk away from it. And so you say on paper, it's protected forever, but there's a management plan that goes into place and there's some monitoring that goes along with that. And so we've got an employee now that's focused on, on um, helping landowners who've put their property into easements, manage that property, put a management plan in place and understand what it takes to, to keep that patch of tall or short grass prairie in good condition over time. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I, yeah. That was one of the things I wanted to ask you to draw a distinction between what you do, your organization does, and like the Kansas Land Trust or the other other yeah. accredited trusts. So I think there's hundreds of those. Yes, yes, and there and there's there's big differences. One thing that I would say is is to contrast that is like Grangeland Trust, um, without having their mission statement in front of me, certainly focused on on producers from a ranching standpoint and and what an easement might mean for a, a family of ranchers. And I'll be really clear, 
the easements we put on properties do not prohibit agriculture, like production. So if we put an easement on a piece of property in the Tallgrass Prairie, it's still open for ranching. Um, and, and so I'll make that real clear, but a lot of times we are focused because of our global scale, we're focused on, um, much larger tracts of property. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe a 20 or, or 40 acre, um, plot of land from an easement standpoint, maybe one we hand to another partner, um, that may not have the capacity that we do from a global standpoint to fund these easements, but our place is really large tracts of land with, high biodiversity value, high value to uh, water quantity and quality in the state. Um, like the Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve you that go. you talked yep. about. Like the Tallgrass Prairie and they, National they, as I understand it, ran into a little bit of financial trouble. And so you guys came in and bought them and kept that going. Is that kind of how that worked? It's a, it's a little more nuanced than that. But, but generally speaking, yeah, there was we had an opportunity to buy a, a pretty large um, piece of property down there um, near strong city. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's really, we're, we're really blessed, um, to have a good partner through the national park service. Um, which really kind of co-management is that what you yeah, said? Co-management. Um, and we just met with them last week to talk about grazing plans and, and, and ongoing access for the public for hiking trails and, and how we manage our, our, uh, Buffalo herds out there. And so it's a really interesting relationship. It's been a lot of fun, um, and it puts that property on the map from a national park standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very well managed. We have staff there that day to day manage that property. They do burn plans. We have a whole burn team in that area of the state, which goes elsewhere to do burns. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's an exciting partnership, and it, it really is an example of um, a lot of people putting their heads together on how to protect a large tract of land. That, and it's a wonderful thing to protect too. I, yeah. I, I got to visit there about a year ago. Yep. Uh, my wife Patty is on yeah. the board of the Kansas Native Plant Society and yep. they had one of their outings there. And Craig Freeman from KU was there and led the tour. And yeah. that was a lot of fun to well, see all the diverse, you know, yeah. things growing there. They have a bet- much better eye than I do for yeah. it. It's, it's a beautiful place. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Patty because I got to know her through a Kansas City group that we were meeting with, with, um, then it was Kansas City Native Plant Initiative. I'm getting that name a little bit wrong, but now with Deep Roots. Now with Deep Roots, yeah. Um, and so uh, I'm glad you brought Patty up. But yeah, anytime. And and uh, we do, um, typically we'll do public tours out there, but uh, give me a call sometime. I'll take you and Patty <laughs> out. And, and actually, I'll have our herd manager take you out, and he can really show you the show you the spot. Yeah, it's, so it's really neat. Speaking of Buffalo, I saw that was a program that caught my eye, mm-hmm. that, that you are, are now with the lands that you manage that have buffalo yep. and you have to control the populations yep. and before you were you were selling them mm-hmm. you know to be taken and processed yep. but now you're you're actually donating them to native tribes yeah talk yeah. about that program that sounds really neat i'd be happy to so um and i'll and i'll talk more kind of at a at a large level what tnc's doing with that program so we as you said with with all of the herds we have um and, it, and I'll get the exact number wrong, but we have herds across the Great Plains Division to the tune of thousands of, of buffalo. Um, and yes, as you say, there, there are a need from a herd management standpoint to, to transfer, transfer or, or um, sell for process excess buffalo. And one of the things we've looked at doing is from a, from a um, buffalo restoration program is what we call it standpoint is we work with the intertribal buffalo council um with different 
um, tribes and indigenous folks around. Um, it's not just the Great Plains Division, but we were focused, given that we're in Kansas and we're in the Great Plains Division, we're focused in that division. But um, yeah, so we work with those tribes to transfer excess buffalo to their herds when possible. Um, there are some instances where from a food sovereignty standpoint, we'll transfer um, excess buffalo to be processed and for example, go into a food school program. Um, and we, we really, it's, I had the opportunity, um, I think I'd been with the Conservancy for maybe two months at that time to go down to the Zapata Ranch in Colorado and meet with some indigenous tribes down there and really get to understand as, as well as I can, being um, a person who grew up in a small town in Kansas, right, the, um, the reverence that the tribes have for buffalo and what they mean to their culture. And, and these, these buffalo are seen as members of family. And so the, it really changes the perspective on how we treat these animals, how we view them. Um, we specifically say transfer, not donate, because donate kind of denotes a, a, uh, a monetary value to these critters. Mm -hmm. um, so we, we are transferring them to these indigenous tribes. And we really are also focused on, on where help is needed, helping them build up infrastructure to manage them. Um, because the management process for buffalo is much different, as most people know, than cattle. Yeah, um, it's just entirely different. I got to participate in a in a buffalo roundup at our Tallgrass Preserve a month ago, hmm. um, and it is amazing that this first of all the size yeah. of full grown buffalo, um, and then the infrastructure infrastructure required to keep them safe as well as the yeah. the herd managers safe as we move them into a shoot, treat, yeah. vaccinate, vaccinate, take samples, etc. This is a totally different operation than a cattle operation. Yeah, I, I would think I, it takes more than a hot hot wire to keep a buffalo back. Like you can. Yeah, and it, it's funny. Transferring I'll, herds of cattle. We've got some interesting um, um, management techniques that we're we're integrating into some of our, the leased properties. So the, these wouldn't be our cattle, but they would be folks who come in and lease our our property to run their own cattle, um, which are this. It's kind of this invisible fence technology. Um, which with cattle can work and we're, we're doing some pilot projects to see how it works. Cause when you think of how you move cattle around the landscape, one of the big limiting factors is the, the maintenance and the fencing required to, to keep them in a certain area or keep them out of a certain area. And our, um, this invisible fence project, um, really it's, I mean, think of it, I'm oversimplifying it and our, and our conservation staff will hear this and be angry with me, but uh, it won't be the first time. But think of it as like a, an invisible fence for a family dog, mm -hmm. um, just times 100. Um, and so the invisible fence technology is really neat because you can, via GPS, change where you're moving these critters. And so for use on, on buffalo herds, it's a little more difficult because once a buffalo makes up their mind that they're going to do something, yeah. Um, they're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And even if it is to walk through a fence. Um, so you have some interesting management strategies. Um, again, that, that fencing technology isn't, um, we've got some pilot projects out there to kind of see how it could work. And, um, but yeah, the infrastructure to manage for Buffalo is significant. Yeah. I was amazed by it, never having seen it. Um, but, uh, yeah. You know, it, it sounds like you have a lot of overlap with agriculture. Mm -hmm. You know, particularly the, the emerging ideas of regenerative ag. Yep. And I think 
you and I were both at the Kiss, Kiss the Ground movie that was aired here five years ago. And, yeah. And yep. I think you were working That's been at Richie Booth a yeah. while. And now the kind of sequel is out, the, the uh, Common Ground mm-hmm. movie. I don't know if you've yep. gotten a chance I to see that no. yet. See it. It's powerful. You know, but it's it's talking about this as a solution, which also your website talks about, yep. you know, in terms of, man, there if we could build the carbon content by doing agriculture in a more organic, more more yeah, like we used to before we got right. got the the ability to get uh, nitrogen from the sky, you know, right. and from fossil fuels right. Right. so easily, you know, that, yeah. that there's a big opportunity to sequester a lot of carbon mm-hmm. and make the the world better and, and more biodiverse and, and healthier. Yeah, and it's it's been interesting when we start talking about regenerative ag uh, when we talk about carbon in the ground. It has been a really good discussion to have with with producers and industry alike, because um, a lot of industry folks are looking at ways they can contribute um, to such a program to to help minimize their own carbon footprint. Um, <clears throat> and there are many ways to do that, and we, there's no need to get into the details of that, but um, it's an interesting idea to put these management practices on the ground to serve so that this landscape can serve as a carbon sink. Um, and it's also to think of a, a, from a producer's standpoint, of a way to um, ensure long-term, long-term use of a landscape for productivity in a way that ensures that your grandkids, your great-grandkids, um, and their great-grandkids are someday going to be able to use the land for the same reasons. And, and, um, and my, again, my conservation staff know this a lot better than I do, but when it comes to how we calculate stocking rates on a piece of property for regenerative ag versus just from a production standpoint. Um, you know, we could, we look at long-term health of the landscape, not short-term, short, short-term gains. Um, and yeah, it's an exciting way to look at agriculture. Um, it's different. I mean, admittedly, like there, there are some producers out there that are still scratching their head about what the heck we're doing with regenerative ag and what it means for their business. Mm-hmm. And if I'm being totally honest with you, we're crunching those same numbers at the same time to, to understand how those decisions to work in regenerative ag can can impact their own, their operations long term um, because it's a, it's kind of a brave new world on, on how to look at this. But um, I think it's hard for anybody to argue from a sustainability standpoint that managing our our agricultural lands in a in a way that is less impactful to the to the ecosystem long term is a bad decision, um, and we're working to provide data, information, and resources for folks to understand that. Um, and we are going to make some mistakes along the way. There's yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah. Uh, well, we did a good show. Terry Wilkie uh, did a good show on the Kiss the Ground movie and mm-hmm. with some great interviews. So, and I would like to follow up with a, a show in a few months, you know, on regenerative ag. Yep. So I might be hitting you up for one of your yeah. experts. And that's, we'll bring them in and they can, they can talk for hours on the topic of, of regenerative ag. And we have like right now an, an example of what we're doing in that space, a, a small example, but we've got a, um, what we're trying to build out to be kind of a model working farm, um, in Dickinson County, um, that is basically, it's, um, about half and half, uh, row crop and grazing lands. Um, and, and give or take 500 acres of each. And those are nice round numbers. Those aren't exact, but, 
um, to talk about regenerative agriculture and how to integrate um, row crop, water quality and quantity issues and, and protection measures in with grazing lands. And so the idea, and we have, um, we're lucky enough, one of our trustees is actually a professor at K-State, Dr. Chuck Rice, is helping us think through what that could look like long-term. Um, and we just hired a um, ag manager to help us manage that property. We have some some folks there right now part-time that work and, and help manage the property, but just looking to see what the possibilities are to put a working model on the ground uh, so that folks can come visit and actually see what we're doing. Yeah, great. All right, Ben, I think we better take our second break. Okay. We'll be right back. Thank you. All right. Support for KKFI brought to you by the Center for Arts and Letters at Rockhurst University, welcoming audiences to events including concerts, poetry readings, book discussions, fine art exhibitions, lectures, workshops, and more. Learn more at rockhurst.edu forward slash center dash arts dash letters. Devotees of Inspired, one of our most insightful syndicated programs, will want to take note that starting on January 28th, Inspired is moving from 5 a.m. to 3 a.m. on Sunday mornings. This inspiring show can also be heard in its entirety after the fact in the KKFI archives at archive.kkfi.org. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazowitz, and this is Climate Connections. For many Minnesota locals, a cold winter is often just an excuse to get outside. We have a bad reputation if you're not from Minnesota, but in Minnesota, we generally celebrate winter. Kenny Blumenfeld is a senior climatologist with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. He says that winter recreation in the land of 10,000 lakes includes everything from skiing and ice skating to snowshoeing and ice fishing. These activities are possible because of the state's historically cold and snowy winters, which allow powdery snow to pile up and lakes to freeze over. But Minnesota's climate is warming, and winter is warming faster than any other season. Rising temperatures can cause lake ice to get thinner, making skating and ice fishing more dangerous. And Blumenfeld says that Minnesota is getting wetter, which means more snowfall. But the snow often melts mid-season and... The snow has a much higher water content, so it's heavy. That makes it harder to ski on, and more likely to damage trees and buildings. For people who love the snowy winters of the north, these changes can make climate change really hit home. And I think it's that recreational piece that Minnesotans really feel because that's where it hits them personally. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. Okay, welcome back to Eco Radio KC. We're talking with Ben Postelwaite from the Nature Conservancy. We've covered a little bit about Ben's background, a little bit about the Nature Conservancy and particularly what they're doing here in the state of Kansas and uh, quite a bit about the kind of um, tie-ins to agriculture. Mm -hmm. The other half of, of the conversation really needs to be around around energy. Yeah. And that's really a, a lot of your back, background and yeah. expertise. For sure. I was on your website and really impressed with an interactive map that you have. Did you have anything to do with the development of that? So only as an energy company employee. So okay. it was developed, um, and, and I'll, you know, roughly 10 years ago, the, the work began. The, TNC understood that developers and energy companies needed a tool to understand the appropriate ways to site renewable energy assets and not just focus on where we, the energy industry could um, could not go, but also focus on areas where they could 
go with minimal impact to the landscape. So Evergy actually, when I worked for Evergy, and it was Westar at that time before they merged with KCPNL to form Evergy, um, we used the tool. We were early adopters of the tool, and it was one tool in the toolbox. So when we reviewed an energy project um, and looked at the landscape, we would gather data and info from Wildlife and Parks, Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, we would gather publicly available information, GIS layers on conservation areas, and then we would also layer this, this Site Renewables Right tool. At the time, it was called Site Wind Right. It morphed to Site Renewables Right um, a few years back to integrate solar into the, the calculation because yeah. we knew solar was coming. Um, and it's really valuable because one of the things that, and again, I understand I have a unique perspective given my energy background, but, but energy companies aren't here to do the wrong things. Um, sure, there's bad actors, as there is in any industry, but, but by and large, developers want to know, hey, what can we do? What are our constraints? Um, where can we do this? Where can we not do this? You know, what are all the factors we need to, to, to bring in? Um, and they really want an entity, somebody, to say, okay, here's your no-go area, here's a good area, and to give them some boundaries on what, what's possible. Because that, for a while, it was kind of the Wild West in terms of, can we do a project here? Well, if you can get the county to buy off on a project, <clears> sure. Yeah. Um, and that has changed quite a bit. Um, maybe not from a regulatory standpoint, because the reg regulations, by and large, have, have, have remained the same. But counties have definitely stepped up and formed their own set of regulations for both solar and wind in many counties that the county zoned. Um, and they ultimately, those county commissioners in those areas kind of hold that, I don't know, the permitting um, responsibility on a lot of those projects. And so what TNC wanted to provide was a tool to be able to give some certainty on good areas, not so good areas, um, so that a county commissioner or a city official or a developer could ask the questions like, well, explain to me why this isn't a good area because mm -hmm. a lot of folks look and they see grass and they think it's just grass yeah. you know what's the value well like like i noticed <clears throat> you have layers that that denote areas that may be eagle habitat mm -hmm. and those tended to follow the rivers right which is where right. you see the, the bald right. eagles right it, it's been a really fun exercise to sit in a room with a developer and and be able to show them um <clears throat> the sensitive areas but then also watch their eyes get wide when we show them the areas that are are better for these these to, to locate these these energy assets um, because I you know I'll, I'll say it very honestly the low hanging fruit for easy um, uh, low impact um, generally accepted by community renewable siting like those days are getting harder and harder yeah um, you know people are starting to understand more what these assets bring to their community. Um, whether it, regardless of which side of the fence you fall on that, whether it's a good or a bad impact. Um, so folks are getting much smarter about how they're, they're weighing in on these decisions to put these renewable assets. And I'll, I'll just say energy assets in general, because these renewable energy, the, the wind or a solar farm, they don't come without transition and transmission infrastructure as well. Right. So those are all things that have to be considered. Right. And with that comes a substation. And with that, so you, mm -hmm. you, you see how this kind of grows. And, you know, our job is to be a trusted resource, a, a, a non-partisan player. I mean, again, I'll go back to our mission, conserve land and water. Like, that is our mission at heart. And so we look at these priorities on how to help 
counties and cities and developers balance all these decisions. Um, and even there are, there are, will be some instances and there's, there's, there's public record of, um, you know, if a, if an array or a, or a wind farm is located in an area that, that isn't considered low impact, we'd love to be able to set standards for, for mitigation criteria. So what does that mean? You know, price per acre, what's the value of it? That in no way gives developers a green light to go into the middle of a great patch of intact prairie, whether it's tall or short grass, um, and put an asset out there regardless. But this is really meant to, okay, this is a marginal grassland. Um, it's been disturbed, um, but there is some impact to the landscape and to, to the sensitive species that use the area. So what, from a mitigation standpoint, what's that, what's the value of that? Because our goal is to any kind of mitigation that goes on as a result of these projects to put that into the heart of those ecosystems. So put it into the heart of the Flint Hills, because a lot of folks ask when it comes to energy, and I cannot speak for the energy company anymore, whether or not transmission, wind, or solar assets have a negative impact on birds, oftentimes is what comes up. Do birds strike wind turbines? Do birds strike power lines? And the answer is yes, they do, um, to a much lesser degree than some folks think. But at the same time, I'll say totally open-hearted, there aren't people standing there every hour of every day watching what happens <clears throat> in these assets. But I will say this, and the data will back this up, the number one threat to biodiversity and all of those species is habitat. So if we're going in and we're destroying 10,000 acres of habitat, that is much more impactful, the habitat loss, than the actual physical structures right. of the air. And some birds, they just would not then build a, a right. nest within <clears throat> five miles of a right. wind turbine. And yeah. that's, a lot of folks will ask me, they'll say, well, why, why would a prairie chicken care if there's a wind turbine nearby? Well, if you think of a ground, and I'll, I'll take the chicken totally out of the conversation, a ground nesting bird, everything, maybe not everything, but a lot of things that want to eat that bird and it's young, they roost in trees, they roost on, on power lines if they're there or on mm -hmm. turbines. And so they will vacate an area and it's been scientifically proven, they'll vacate an area with a lot of tall structure above them. Sure. So those ground nesting birds, and, and it's not, and it's, what's interesting is you know, there are what we call kind of keystone species, species that, and, and I'm not talking indicator species, but keystone species that might leave an area that also impact other species down the line, whether it be a, um, you know, a, a, a type of grass or a forb or a, a pollinator. So every time we disrupt these ecosystems, it has a domino effect and an impact. And so this is all along kind of a rant to, to say when it comes to mitigation, the goal is if it has a minimal impact on a kind of low value area from a from an environmental standpoint, we'd rather put that mitigation to the heart of habitat to make that species so durable. It doesn't matter if they lose an acre here or there because they have this 100,000 acre swath of land that we've protected. Yeah. Um, and that's our goal. And that's what I, I try to drive that home a lot is, is the data will not show you that a turbine or a power line does not impact birds from a collision standpoint. Um, that happens. But the habitat that we can create and protect is what's going to give those species um, the ability to withstand drought, to withstand flooding, to withstand the crazy nature of our weather these days. That good habitat, high species numbers, that gives them the ability to weather those storms. 
Um, and habitat protection is the number one way to protect biodiversity. Yeah. This is all really good stuff, Ben. I'm, I'm really pleased with the information that we've conveyed in this hour. I think our time is up for this yeah. interview, but you know, maybe it, maybe I'll come back and talk with you again in a, in a year or so. And always, I think, I think it's, there's, there's good work being done here. I'd, I'd always be willing to do it. And next time, bring Patty. It'd I'll do good, it. It'd be good to have Patty here okay. with us. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Hi, this is Maria Hall, co-host of Lawn Disorder. Thank you for joining us on Tuesday mornings, 9 a.m. here on KKFI 90.1 FM in beautiful Kansas City, Missouri. We're now moving to Monday, 7 p.m. as of January 2024. That's Monday, 7 p.m. Lawn Disorder will be now broadcasting Monday evening, 7 p.m. So keep it locked in right here to KKFI 90.1 FM. Hey, Maynard, how many of those extra cars or boats do you really need laying around? Your yard is starting to look like a junkyard. Did you know KKFI would take one or all of those vehicles running or not? You could get rid of them, providing you have a title, and KKFI would receive the funds, which would be a tax deduction for you. Call KKFI at 816-931-3122. My name is Darnell. At the end of our hour, here's some environmental news for the week of January 8, 2024. Inside Climate News reports, Ireland is considering a nationwide referendum on the rights of nature and the human right to a healthy environment. If that happens, Ireland would become the first European nation to constitutionally recognize that ecosystems similar to humans and corporation possess legal rights. More than two-thirds of the 27 European Union countries already recognize a universal human right to a healthy environment. An act in Washington state has banned five chemical classes into 10 product categories throughout the state, making it the nation's strongest law regulating toxic chemicals in products. Fewer EV vehicles than before qualify for the U.S. government's $7,500 federal tax credit for 2024. Just 19 models can receive the credit when purchased as new, down from 43 last year. A Nissan Leaf, Tesla, a Cybertruck, and Volkswagen ID.4 are among those that no longer qualify. The federal government published a new list of eligible EVs based on the latest guidance from the Treasury Department under the Inflation Reduction Act. Another change this year is that auto dealers can claim the credit for customers at the point of sale, as opposed to having customers wait until they file their taxes. The new rules reflect the government's desire to encourage automakers to build EVs in this country and to use battery components sourced from this country or its allies. What's in the cosmetic that millions of Americans use on their skin, hair, and nails every single day is often a big question mark. What we do know is that some of the chemicals found in things like shampoo, deodorants, and lipsticks have
have been linked to serious health problems, but there has been a huge regulatory gap. A new law, the Modernization of Cosmetic Regulation Act, went into effect at the end of December 2023, and it gives the Food and Drug Administration more power to regulate the industry. Hydraulic fracking, better known as fracking, produced billions of gallons of toxic radioactive wastewater and leaks volatile organic compounds and the super polluting greenhouse gas methane into the air. It may be the defining environmental issue of this generation. Pennsylvania is the nation's second largest natural gas producing state behind only Texas. And like Texas, the state is facing significant problems disposing of billions of gallons of produced water that is mixed with sand and proprietary extraction fluid and blast miles beneath to extract gas from tiny pores in the shale. The brackish wastewaters, which comes up with extracted gas, is five or more times saltier than seawater and is laced not only with the toxic drilling chemicals, but natural substances from deep underground. Sustainability Action Newsletter reports. A new study shows that higher economic growth is a major driver of greenhouse gas emissions. The study demonstrates that lower economic growth alone can reduce CO2 emissions by 10 to 13 percent by 2030. To reduce global emissions fast enough, it is necessary to pursue a shift away from growth. Wind power had a terrible year. In New Jersey, offshore wind projects collapsed after developers pulled out. In the UK, an auction for offshore wind farm failed to attract any bidders at all. For many wind projects, each new turbine is now now costs 40% more today than they did two years ago. Wind projects are often a long way from existing transmission lines, and there's a huge backlog to connect them. Now, instead of mounting massive blades on gigantic turbine towers, a new device consists of 30-foot wings that travel along a lightweight track supported by a series of poles that are 80 feet high. It is calculated these will cost less to build. EcoWatch reports Colorado has suspended application for its e-bike rebate program because the program was so popular it ran out of its initial funding ahead of schedule. Program started in August 2023. Environmental Missouri reports the Biden administration announced final energy saving standards for home refrigerators and freezers. The new standards will take effect in February 2029 for most product types and will ensure new refrigerators and freezers sold nationwide will use significantly less energy while maintaining today's latest features and sizes. According to the Department of Energy, the updated standards will avert more tons of carbon dioxide emissions from power plants, as much as the climate equivalent of taking 22 million gas-powered cars off the road for a year. Thanks for listening to Eco Radio KC. Please tune in again next week or listen to our podcast at any time. They paved paradise, put up a parking lot. 
thank you for listening to Eco Radio KC on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Eco Radio is brought to you each week by a team of collaborators, including me, Craig Lugo, Terry Wilkie, Brent Rysdale, Bob Grove, and Dave Mitchell.